0: And then along came this man, Donald Trump. This orange guy came down the escalator in 2015 and won me over. And I was one of the most public and and, and vocal supporters of Donald Trump, advocating for him and for the movement. When I looked at what Ron DeSantis did in uh, 2020 and during COVID, it was nothing short of monumental. So that's when I first came to really admire from afar, Ron DeSantis. What is your message to someone that
1: maybe liked Trump, had a lot of affinity for him, voted for him twice, What would you say to convince them that DeSantis is actually the better option? I would also humbly
0: ask you to to consider who is the best option to both win and then implement a very conservative patriotic populist agenda.
1: Hey guys, just wanted to provide a quick disclaimer. Steve Cortez does in fact run the DeSantis Never Back Down PAC. Catholic Vote has not officially endorsed anyone. However, he did take the time to come make the Catholic case for DeSantis. That being said, we do welcome any candidate or any representative for those candidates to come make the case for their candidate for 2024. I reiterate before we start, Catholic Vote has not endorsed anyone, but we really thank Steve Cortez and the DeSantis team for taking the time to speak directly to LoopCast audience, and loopers themselves. Enjoy the episode. God bless everyone. Welcome back to the LoopCast. Today, I am joined with a man in a unique position. So he served as the senior spokesperson and strategist for the 2016 and 2020 campaigns for Donald Trump, and is now the national spokesperson for Ron DeSantis and the Never Back, Never back Down Pack. His name is Steve Cortez. Steve, thank you so much
0: for joining the program today. Hey, Tom, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Of course. And I'm going to take all the tips I can get because you're a man that spent a lot of time in front of the camera. You've been on many news programs. You were in, uh, on Fast Money back in the day. I think it's probably been, oh man, 20 years. Um, but I want to get to know who you are first before you were on the camera. So I know, I understand that you kind of grew up in Chicago, big Catholic family. Uh, what was that like? What was that upbringing like for you? How did it form
0: you? Sure. So I grew up uh, in the South suburbs of Chicago in the uh, Park four Chicago Heights area had a wonderful Catholic home. Was I'm uh, the fifth of six children, so a big family. My mother, uh, an Irish farm girl from Fort Wayne, Indiana. My father, uh, also a farm boy, but not from Indiana, from far away from Columbia, South America. And, uh, and The Catholic angle there, by the way, uh, one of them, is that he was a Catholic seminarian in Columbia, came to the United States for graduate school with the intention to return to Columbia to be ordained a priest but met my mother and no more priesthood and no more Columbia. So uh, life changed <laughs> drastically and became an American citizen, grew to, to greatly love uh, and appreciate this country. And we were raised, thankfully, all my siblings and I, in a very uh, deeply Catholic home, a deeply loving and, and highly practicing Catholic home. I went to Catholic school my entire life. And um, we also were raised in, in a, frankly, working class neighborhood. Uh, we were never poor, but we certainly didn't have any luxuries in life. We had raised six children, sent them all to parochial school on a middle-class income. Uh, that is a reality that does not exist for middle-class folks today. So it's one of the reasons uh, to, to uh, you know, I know you want to learn about my background before we jump right into politics, but I will tell you there's a there's a connection there. One of the reasons that I'm so animated and, and motivated about politics is because the kind of life that I had as a child growing up, I don't think is possible today, or at least not possible for very, very many families. And not to mention the culture that all of us grew up in, regardless of your economic circumstances. I was raised, thankfully, in a country I'm 51 years old. I think I was near the end of people who were raised in a country where there was sort of broad agreement on first things, You know, meaning philosophically we were still a country that largely subscribed to Judeo-Christian principles. And so even if you yourself weren't a practicing Christian, uh, you subscribed generally to those, to those mores and those traditions. That has changed very, very drastically today, And politics is part of that. It's not the only component, but it's definitely part of it. And that also motivates me to be very active, engaged in the political arena, because uh, I don't think it's an improvement where our culture has gone, where our economy has gone uh, from the time that I was a young person, a child in this country.
1: Yeah. Not a curiosity because your initial, and you came from a working class background, but you end up on TV, specifically in money, the economy, investing, all of these things. And so you started out there for a long time and then kind of made the jump. You've actually been seen on a lot of what people would consider to be hostile programs, say CNN, MSNBC, you really don't run from that. So was, was there the shift that you thought that, okay, this is no longer a problem. The middle class thing cannot be solved by good monetary policy. It goes deeper than that. We need to get more involved on a political level. Was that what made you jump from fast money to then going on CNN, Fox,
0: jumping into politics? Yes. You know, uh Tom, was certainly part of it. I will tell you. So yes, I got into out television outside of politics. I had a Wall Street career um, and it was a, a very uh, successful career, an enjoyable career, and I think I was doing good work, but at the end of the day, what I realized, and, and that brought me into television. So my, my Wall Street career got me into television where primarily on CNBC, that's where I got my start in media. We were debating uh, tickers, not, not, you know, not issues of the day, but stock tickers and earnings and, and uh, portfolio allocation, all that sort of thing, but I, I came to realize that I had these media skills, and I had a certain media following, and what I was essentially doing for the most part was trying to help rich hedge fund managers get wealthier. Uh, now there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that at all. There's, there's nothing immoral about that work, but I really felt that there was a bigger calling for me, that there was a vocation and that God wanted me to do something more meaningful with my talents than simply help a wealthy hedge fund get wealthier. Um, and particularly once I developed skills in television and in media, that these could be used for bigger purposes. And then along came this man, Donald Trump. This orange guy came down the escalator in 2015. <laughs> And won me over. Uh, I had no intention, though, at that point. You know, as I said, there was a, a stirring within me that I think came from the Lord to say, do something bigger with these talents, but I didn't know what to do yet. And I certainly did not have a game plan that, okay, I'm going to get involved in campaigning. I'm going to get directly involved in, in, um, in politics. But when Donald Trump came down the escalator, he very much won me over. Uh, with, and with the zeal of a convert, uh, by that time I had moved from CNBC over to Fox Business. I started to support him on air because it was inevitable that we talked about, at the time I was still primarily covering financial markets, but when we talked about financial markets, we would dip always into politics. I started saying very positive things about Donald Trump, and he appreciated that very much, reached out to me, asked me to become part of the campaign. And that's when I realized that, okay, this is my new arena, and this is a place where I can use all of my experiences, all of my Wall Street knowledge, my knowledge on the economy, um, but to not just try to enhance portfolio returns, but to try to make life better in our society, and particularly for middle-class people. Because yes, I do believe, and this is why I believe so fervently now, and I'm really kind of a a convert to populism. I used to be a bit of a Wall Street Republican. I'm much more populist now, largely because of Donald Trump opening my eyes and a lot of reading and a lot of analysis since then. I really believe that middle-income Americans in so many ways, but particularly economically— um, have been disregarded and mistreated for decades in this country. And I want to make it my life's work, my professional task to do everything possible to reverse that and to improve opportunities and improve the welfare of middle-class families. And primarily because, you know, Tom, I believe this as a Catholic, um, wealth is, is a good. Uh, it can be abused, of course, and the pursuit of it can be abused. But it exists primarily not so that the super rich can water ski behind a yacht, but rather so that families can be strong and sustainable and build strong and sustainable communities that include things like Christian schools um, and strong churches and all all of the things that make civil society flourish. So to me, that's what's really at the crux of driving me in the political arena, motivating me, um, and I hope that I'm at least part of the solution of, of saving, frankly, this country and particularly saving the middle class, which has been so disparage and abuse in this country.
1: I want to go back for a second. So you mentioned that Trump won you over, almost somewhat of a convert. And I think for a lot of people, he really was seen as this, this outsider. He has no chance. What's going on? He was so different. But what about him made you want to join? And then what were you, because also he was a very wealthy individual. And yet you talk so much about populism in the middle class. What were you able to accomplish while you were with him in the White House? to further that, the dream that you just mentioned, the human flourishing, the middle class, things like that. Sure.
0: Well, you know, first, what won me over about Donald Trump, and of course, uh, you know, I, I want to always be very transparent about this. I'm right now literally uh, working for and campaigning uh, for Do- uh, Ron DeSantis against Donald Trump, a man who I greatly admire. But I believe I can admire Donald Trump while at the same time believing that he's not necessarily the best person, is not the best person to get the nomination this time around. But going backward to, to 2015 and 2016, What won me over about Donald Trump primarily was his authenticity, and uh, I really believed that there there was a genuineness to him that was incredibly magnetic and attractive. And he recognized that there was tremendous angst out there in the country, particularly among working class people. And he correctly ascertained that these economic problems were primarily the result of terrible policies, and not just the terrible policies of Obama and Biden, although they were awful, but terrible policies of decades and decades of globalism, particularly since 2001 when China was allowed into the World Trade Organization. And that's the issue where he really won me over, because I will tell you, as a Wall Street guy, at one point I did to a degree buy into the Wall Street myth that the United States engaging in business with China was going to somehow transform China and that they were going to become more like the United States. What Donald Trump correctly pointed out is exactly the opposite happened. We didn't transform China at all. If anything, China has become more authoritarian and more abusive and oppressive, certainly to its own people, but also more importantly for us to the American people, and did enormous damage with the help of American elites did enormous damage to American industry, American jobs, and to American communities and many of the uh the many of the ravages that we suffer right now in this country, many of the social ills, the pathologies in this country, not all of them, but many of them flow. From that deindustrialization and our and our terrible policy with China that was supposedly about quote free trade, but it never was free. It was always managed and managed against the interests of American workers. So he opened my eyes about all of that, and uh, and once I did convert, uh, I spoke with this. I spoke and still do. I hope speak with the zeal of a convert because I firmly believe that patriotic populism um, is the future, and I, I believe this too, Tom. Populism is going to continue to. Uh, to grow and ascend and and reign, not just in this country, but I believe all over the world. The only real question to me, I, I think that's practically a given. The only real question to me is, is it going to be the populism of the left, or is it you know, the AOCs of the world, or is it going to be the populism of the right? Clearly, I'm advocating strongly that it be a populism of the right, that we combine economic populist nationalism with cultural conservatism. And I think if we do that, which this new movement is doing very effectively— uh, then I think we are, we're building, we're in the early stages of building the political movement that will dominate for decades. And to get to some of the policy wins, quite frankly, I wish there were more policy wins during that first Trump administration. It's one of the reasons I believe, while I, again, I have great respect for him. I think he did some amazing things for this country, but I believe that that one term should be his only term in office. Um, but one of the successes that was achieved was at least reorienting the way Americans think about the economy. You know, uh, too many people in the ruling class, including you know so-called conservatives, view American citizens as effectively cogs in an economic wheel, and that the only goal should be maximum output. It should just be how much GDP can we produce. Uh, but thankfully, my Catholic faith informed me here. I really believe in a in a an agenda of distributivism um, that we should be we should be intentional about trying to make sure that prosperity is broadly shared. Um, not through top-down command structures, but rather through making sure that there is competition, that there is onshoring, uh, that the market's not being manipulated by the very biggest players. Um, and so big business is very often the enemy now of conservatives, very often the enemy of family. So all of that was an awakening for me personally. It's something where Donald Trump, I think, opened a lot of eyes, where he had some limited policy successes. And I happen to believe Ron DeSantis could have much more significant policy successes if given the opportunity, if he earns the right to be the American president.
1: Yeah. And in your personal reputation, as you said, you've built quite the following You're on TV all the time. You were very popular when you were uh, with President Donald Trump at the time. And you took a huge hit to take the leap to DeSantis. Now, what caused you to make the jump? I mean, a lot of personal sacrifice was
0: involved, but what did you see that made you feel that was necessary? Sure. And listen, I was fully aware of the professional risks that I was taking. Uh, and I'm not trying to say what well, was me. I'm not trying to play the martyr. But I'm just saying I, I was aware of it, that this is a, a risky move for me because I certainly had built up. I worked either you know officially or unofficially for Donald Trump for seven years. And so picking a different candidate in the Republican primary was sure to create a lot of backlash. And you know, in fact, that unfolded. It unfolded in a way that was more intense than I would have guessed, to be perfectly honest, because a lot of people and organizations that I really thought were my friends and allies acted very differently only because I decided to back the most conservative governor in America. Um, you know, a lot of talk about me being a traitor and that sort of just, you know, vitriolic, hyperbolic talk, uh, you know, which is insane. Of course, it's not as though I went over to Joe Biden. You know, I went to what I believe is the most conservative, most electable candidate possible. And, and the reason I did that is, is twofold. You know, one on the, on the negative side, as much as I admire Donald Trump and what he did for this country, uh, I do not believe that that means that he is the right candidate for all time. Uh, I just I don't believe in that, and I don't believe in an oath to any politician um, yeah, that is irrevocable. Uh, I just I don't think that is the American way. I think we can respect what he did, and it's still baseball season. To use a baseball analogy, there is always a time, no matter how good the pitcher, almost always a time to pull that pitcher to say thank you, well done. It's time to hand the ball now uh, off to the next guy. And then on the positive side, when I looked at what Ron DeSantis did in uh, 2020 and during COVID in Florida. It was nothing short of monumental. And I believe, Tom, that he may have saved America. And I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that because you had the blue states like Illinois, where I lived at the time, New York, California, locking down every bit as hard as places like Australia were. You know, some of the most draconian places in the world with tyrannical and totally unscientific and often illegal lockdowns. You then had Florida, which initially did obey the directives of the trump pence Fauci task force initially obeyed those directives and locked down reasonably hard for a very short amount of time. But Ron DeSantis and his science advisor, the Surgeon General of Florida, who I wish had been the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Latipo, they started looking at the data, started looking at the scientific reality, and said, wait a second, Uh, this is not an inordinate risk to children. Uh, Masks are not effective at protecting against this. Vaccines should not be mandated upon anyone as a condition of employment or school education. And so uh, Florida became this bastion, this beacon of freedom and hope. And they proved uh, through bravery, and it was a bold stance at the time, Ron DeSantis proved that yes, in fact, we could reopen aggressively and safely. And that the lockdowns were not helping, in fact, were harming society in very many ways. So that's when I, Tom, first came to really admire from afar Ron DeSantis. I did not know him. Uh, but then when he won in 2022, on an on election night of 2022 during the midterms, when Republicans overwhelmingly disappointed um, and I was you know, among the millions of Americans who expected a much bigger red wave that simply did not materialize. We won the House, but barely. We performed very poorly at the Senate level and in most statewide races across the country, despite uh, runaway inflation, a very weak president in Joe Biden. We simply were not able to capitalize. But the one... Grand exception to uh, an otherwise disappointing night was the state of Florida. And it wasn't just that Ron DeSantis won by 19%, which was incredible. He improved you know, almost that full 19% over his victory in 2018 when he barely won by 0.4%. But he also lifted, he had, he had coattails. He lifted all of the other office seekers in Florida with him. And for the first time since the Reconstruction era, all statewide offices in the state of Florida went to Republicans, went to sound, patriotic, populist. Conservatives, so it's not just a DeSantis one, but the team one. And again, that was such an outlier; it was such an exception on that night that that's when, in my mind, anyway, the light bulb went off and said, "You know what? Into twenty twenty four, if this man is willing to jump into the arena, I am going to switch teams. I'm going to do everything I can to help him to be the Republican nominee because he proved by what he did in Florida, both on a policy side and campaign politics side, uh, he proved that he is the most conservative." most electable leader in America. He is young. He is dynamic. If he is elected, he can serve two terms. So I took what was, for me, frankly, a difficult leap because, again, I built up such credibility within Trump world. I have such affinity for President Trump personally. It was not an easy thing for me to do, to tell him, to tell others within that sphere uh, that I was doing this. But I did it for reasons of patriotism. And I still, to this day, believe it is the right thing to do, and though we've got a really tough campaign ahead, I hope and believe and am prayed that uh, that DeSantis will, in fact, be the nominee, and if he is, I'm very confident that he will be president of the United States.
1: Yeah, and so if I can, I, do, I definitely remember being there with you, watching the supposed red wave kind of turn into a little bit of a puddle, but Florida was kind of the first thing in the night where everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is totally happening. The dominance there was pretty unbelievable, and you just, you see it fall flat everywhere else. There was so much momentum, I think, at that point for, oh my gosh, DeSantis has a great shot at president here. Trump's kind of falling a little bit. So the polls, at least, were very close at the time. Right, And so fast forward to now, we see a large gap. I think you you would acknowledge, and most people listening to this would acknowledge, there's a pretty significant gap there right now. What do you think the playbook now is for Team DeSantis to start closing that gap and making the case more clear to Americans all over the country, not just in Florida, that, hey, I have a really solid plan
0: here to execute, change the country, get it back on track. Sure. And listen, Tom, I'll be the first to acknowledge, absolutely, you know, we are the underdog, um, and and we are chasing a clear favorite in Donald Trump, and we have work to do, quite frankly, and the governor knows that, I know that, you know, any observer uh, who's being objective and honest knows that. The, uh, The current lead that President Trump enjoys, I think, is almost entirely a result of the indictments, and I think that the indictments have overwhelmingly been totally unjust, a total abuse of prosecutorial power. Um, and But nonetheless, they have caused an emotional reaction within Republican voter ranks, an understandable reaction, a, a bit of a rally around the flag of saying, if they are going to go after our guy and prosecute him in a way that really is a persecution, more than a prosecution, then I'm going to vote for him. And I understand that reaction. I understand that emotional uh, knee-jerk reaction, but I am also trying to appeal to voters to to try to think very, very rationally and in a, in a strategic way. Uh, if Trump is being mistreated, and I believe he is, and Ron DeSantis has been very clear about that—that that he is—what is the best way to remedy that mistreatment? In my view, it is not to make Donald Trump, who is the only politician in America with negatives as high as Joe Biden's, to make him the nominee. Um, furthermore, I, I, I believe that. Ron DeSantis has the best story to tell right now to the american people and thankfully we do have some um uh some some assets going our way some advantages going our way into this stretch and and by the way when i say into the stretch you know look it is still september it is still early we are not going to get to voting until martin luther king day in january in iowa so it hasn't even gotten cold yet even in the most northern parts of the country once it starts getting cold we'll know things are getting a lot more serious and, uh, and polls will mean a lot more then. Not that we're not paying attention now, but they'll mean more then. But uh, in terms of those, those advantages that we bring to the table, number one is I think we have just an incredibly compelling story. And I don't mean just uh, his magnificent leadership of the state of Florida, but his life story, Governor DeSantis. He's uh, somebody who grew up as a middle-class kid in a Catholic family who, through his smarts uh, with the books and his skill with a bat and glove, got himself to Yale University, got himself to Harvard Law School, then decided after that, rather than immediately cashing in um, on that credential, that amazing credential of a Harvard Law degree, he was motivated by September 11th. Instead, he joined the United States Navy um, and served this country in uniform, was deployed alongside the Navy SEALs to Iraq. So he's uh, an incredible story, has accomplished a heck of a lot for a young man who's only 44 years old, and then, of course, everything he's done as governor. So I think we have the the DeSantis story to tell, which is significant. The second thing is because he has been campaigning so hard, because he participated in the debate, because he believes in respecting the voters and earning their votes, his name ID, and I know this from our metrics that we use at the political action committee, his name ID has skyrocketed to the point where it's now universalist. Now, he's now almost as widely known as Donald Trump, somebody who was universally known, of course, you know, perhaps the most known person in in the world. So name ID has now gotten there. That means a lot. And then the third advantage that we have, frankly, is funding, is that we can stay in the race. Often what forces candidates out, if they're not in the lead, are financial pressures. Uh, thankfully, there has been a groundswell of support for DeSantis, both when he was governor as well as, as a presidential candidate. And so we have the resources uh, to be strong, not just stay in the race, but to be strong and, and promote this story, even if the corporate media doesn't help us out, even if the corporate media won't be objective, about the race. And by the way, I would point that out if you notice, corporate media and I, I think both the legacy conservative media and certainly the, the toxic and corrupt liberal media, the, the, the corporate media in America, are both in favor of Donald Trump uh, because they know, number one, that he's good for clicks. He, uh, he's great for eyeballs and great for clicks. But number two, in, in terms of the liberal media, uh, they believe, and I believe correctly so, that he will likely lose in the general election. And So the corporate media believes it gets the best of both worlds with Trump. Um, they get a lot of clickbait, and then they get a candidate who ultimately loses because they don't want him to prevail. They are very, very unfair to Ron DeSantis for that reason. And I believe Ron DeSantis has had to fight uh, the media on almost all sides, uh, conservative media, legacy corporate media. And it's a difficult task. Uh, but again, you know, not, no one on the team, certainly not Ron DeSantis nor anyone else, is saying, woe is me. Um, it's just part of the challenge. And thankfully, we have the resources, I think, to at least fight back. Against that bias,
1: yeah, and I have to say, some of the times where I felt that DeSantis has really shined is when being confronted by reporters that have pretty bad angles, and he really has quick answers. He snaps back. Those are some times I've seen him at his best. Um, I think I'd like to ask to you, too, as someone who knows him personally, one of the critiques that I hear often, which oftentimes come from these ma- mainstream news places, that he's awkward that he doesn't have personality. I mean, it's almost hard to compete with a guy like Trump because he's just electric TV at all times. I mean, he's basically a reality star before this, so he gets it. But what would you say to people that when they hear that, what's the truth knowing him personally? What would you say back to those
0: accusations? Yeah, listen, I would say, uh, look, if, it, if it's a charisma contest only, uh, then, then Donald Trump <laughs> probably wins, right? And probably wins the general yeah. election uh, in, <laughs> right. in that regard. But it is, of course, not just, just a charisma con- uh, contest, thankfully. And this country has such serious problems, right? now, Economically, culturally, um, risking World War III in Ukraine. We have such intense, serious problems um, that this cannot be about just pure entertainment. And again, from an entertainment-only perspective, uh, Donald Trump is probably uh, the standout of the entire presidential field, both Republican and Democrat. But uh, Ron DeSantis, what I can tell you this is, When it comes to principles and values and discipline and and steely discipline and ability to withstand uh, the slings and arrows of the media, to withstand the howls of the ruling class, Uh, when it comes to the kind of character, the kind of fortitude, internal fortitude to take on extremely powerful forces like Walt Disney, like Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, he's exactly who we want there. Now, is he the most entertaining candidate in the world? No, uh, he's not. Is he a fun and wonderful guy to be around? Yes, he absolutely is. Um, But I think he also recognizes the gravity of the moment. He recognizes what time it is in America. He recognizes that we are losing our country in many ways. And I think uh, anyone who takes an honest look at this country, particularly anyone who is serious about their Catholic faith, um, if if you approach the world from that worldview, from that mindset, you will realize that this country has transformed in negative ways in recent years that are almost hard to fathom. Um, Ron DeSantis realizes that. And he realizes that the country is savable, but that the clock is ticking. um, And that this task in front of us is momentous. In some ways, it is grave. um, And it is too important to just rely on political entertainment or titillation. Uh, So, you know, having said all that, I can tell you in my interactions with them, uh, he's a great guy. He's fun to be around, but clearly, uh, uh, being entertaining or only relying on on charisma or sort of uh, only relying on on camera skill is not going to be his priority. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And one thing you brought coming from it like a Catholic, right here at the Loopcast, we're Catholic. It's it's our thing, kind of. We're, we're all Catholic. We come at politics with that as our bias, of course. And one thing that I think has really frustrated me that I didn't see too much of in the debates and I have not heard talk too much by Donald Trump as well is the abortion question. Because each day that we go on here, conservatives seem to have no true united front answer for what is the solution to the fact that now that Roe v. Wade is gone, how do we fight back against people that are trying to enshrine abortion within state constitutions up to the second of birth? And each candidate has a different answer for that. This might be an opportunity for Governor DeSantis to potentially separate himself. And as a Catholic, what is his answer to basically the fact that it's a free fall, free for all on the federal level in terms of abortion? What is
0: his vision for if he becomes president, what he will do? Right. Well, listen, first before, and I do want to answer your question on the federal level, but you know, first I do just want to state for anyone out there who maybe does not know, hopefully everyone is aware uh, that he did uh, encourage, pass and sign one of the strongest pro-life protections in all of America in the state of Florida. and took enormous grief for it, particularly from his donors. You know, one of the accusations that's often made from the Trump camp against Ron DeSantis is that he is somehow manipulated or controlled by his donors. And I can tell you that is just not true. And you don't have to rely on my word for it, by the way, because the, the wealthiest man in the state of Florida, a guy named Thomas Petrify, who founded Interactive Brokers, he gave an interview with the Financial Times, largest single donor to... Governor DeSantis's gubernatorial campaign, and he said, I'm no longer supporting the governor because he signed that pro-life legislation. So um, that is is one powerful instance of proof that this man, this leader, is not controlled by any special interests, is not controlled by the donors. He believes in protecting women, in protecting unborn babies, and he has now done that, he doesn't just believe in it, he has done it, he's implemented it in the state of Florida. So I think mean, he's got incredible pro-life uh, credentials to run on. Regarding the federal level, what, what Governor DeSantis has said In the debates and in other forums, is that he does not anticipate that there's going to be any significant pro-life legislation coming out of this Congress, and I think he's correct. I just think that that is the Congress is you know even if we maintain control of the U.S. House, and obviously I hope we do, even if we win control of the U.S. Senate, it will be a narrow majority. So the idea that we're going to get really significant pro-life legislation out of the U.S. Congress at a federal level, um, it's just not realistic. He has said that he is pro-life and that he will welcome all pro-life. Legislation, but I, I do think it's important for us to deal in, in political reality. We 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 never bend, of course, on our principles. Right, that every single life is sacred from the moment of conception. But in terms of how do we make that principle a reality? How do we make it a political reality? How do we get it into, into law, into statute? Uh, there, I think we do have to be um, uh, skilled, and we and we have to be we have to be willing to negotiate. And the reality is, uh, while in states like Florida in states like my new home state of Tennessee, thank goodness, thank God, we have incredible pro-life protections for women and mothers. At the federal level, uh, that is not going to be a reality anytime soon. Now, having said that, what Governor DeSantis is also committed to, and I think we need to all commit to, let's continue to build the culture of life because it can't just be about changing laws. Of course, we need to change laws. But we change hearts and minds through the culture. And let's continue to change the culture so that someday— my former state of Illinois, where it's unthinkable right now, let's have pro-life protections in the state of Illinois. Um, it's unthinkable today, but perhaps it's not in a decade or two decades uh, if we if we build the culture of life. So, you know, I think on this issue of abortion, uh, which is a hugely important issue for everyone, uh, and c- certainly for every practicing committed Catholic, uh, uh, I think Ron DeSantis has earned the support of of voters uh, and has earned their trust that he will function as president as the same kind of pro-life leader that he has in the governor's office in Tallahassee.
1: Yeah. And you, you mentioned building a culture of life. And that's something that I think Catholics really understand. Well, that's an often used phrase. Um, but for people maybe on the other side of the issue, they just see Catholics and pro-lifers as they're just pro-birth. You know, right. They don't know, care about women. They don't care about other things. So in the governor's mind, what does he mean by building a culture of yeah. life? What is he trying to accomplish no, in doing that?
0: I'm glad you asked this uh, because we are certainly not just pro-birth. Births are wonderful; they're 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 miracles, right? But it doesn't end there. Clearly, um, and we want long, happy lives for every every precious human being who is born, every citizen of this country. So, what does that mean? Let me give you a very specific policy example of what it means to care for children uh, in the state of Florida and the kind of mindset and policy implementation agenda that Ron DeSantis brings. And this is, I hope, particularly convincing for Catholics. So, Florida has one of the most aggressive school choice paradigms in all of America, meaning that a large percentage of the money that funds schools in Florida does not go to systems, systems that are often corrupt, systems that are often manipulated by teachers' unions, and frankly, government school monopolies that often indoctrinate children with toxic secular humanist garbage rather than real education. So instead, in Florida, it's one of the best places in America to send your children to private schools with government support um, if you are not wealthy enough to afford it on your own and particularly to Catholic schools. And just a few weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal had an editorial by its editorial board on exactly this issue, on the success of Catholic schools in Florida. And listen, I, Tom, I knew that it was good. I frankly didn't know it was this good until the Wall Street Journal <laughs> uh, put out these numbers. I know Catholic Vote promoted these numbers uh, as well they should have. So of the 10 states in America with the largest Catholic school populations, nine of the 10 over the last decade have seen their Catholic school enrollment drop and in some cases drop dramatically, not just drop, frankly, melt down. In New York and New Jersey, two very Catholic states, private, uh, Catholic school enrollment has dropped 30% in the last decade. In Pennsylvania, another uh, very Catholic state, but unfortunately a very blue state, Catholic school enrollment has dropped 25%. So you have a quarter to a third losses in major Catholic state of Catholic school enrollment. In the state of Florida, Catholic school enrollment over the last decade has grown. It has grown by 4%, the only state... Of those 10 the 10 largest states of catholic schools to gain you know now why in large part the the preponderance of the of the uh reason is because of governor DeSantis and this very aggressive school choice program that allows families who aren't wealthy to afford to send their kids to catholic schools but it's also something a, a bit more than that tom it's it's also building an environment a business and cultural environment that is so attracted to families such that families are pouring into the state of florida so you see an influx of population that of course, includes a lot of children, and many of these children are then becoming enrollees in Catholic schools, which I think all of us as Catholics should welcome you know as, as an enormous uh, positive development in this state. So that's one way, one really significant uh, example I would give you of of not just caring about the birth, we care a lot about that. absolutely. We want children cared for in the womb. We want them to be born safely and healthily into this world. We then want them to flourish as children and young adults. And Ron DeSantis has made that happen. And school choice is just one of the examples uh, that I can point to with numbers, with data and evidence of that reality.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We actually had Corey DeAngelis on who has basically made it his life's mission to get school choice everywhere. And Florida was one of the early adopters of this idea. Obviously, glad to see some success here. Um, Some other things that I think about too, just include pregnancy resource centers where places like. New York and New Hampshire have basically tried to make them illegal, essentially. And these are just places trying to provide help to pregnant mothers. But while I have you, I'm kind of in the driver's seat now for a lot of the Catholic maybe angle on looking at a lot of these issues. And another one that I think came up recently is immigration and how Florida's handled immigration is different than how a lot of the rest of the country has. And at a federal level, we clearly have an issue here. And basically what was said was any indication that we want a secure border is xenophobic, essentially. But we just had New York Mayor Eric Adams essentially say, illegal immigration is going to ruin this city. We need to do something. It's going to tear everything down. The ladies on The View got up and said, New York City can't handle it. We got to send them elsewhere. I've even heard President Biden is considering basically keeping these migrants in Texas. This just doesn't scream human flourishing to me, for anyone, migrants or Americans included. Governor DeSantis has seemed to do a pretty good job in Florida of making sure immigration is legitimate. I know there's the busing thing, sending them to Martha's Vineyard, which I think sent a statement, right. has now kind of ballooned into this. What is his vision for, if he is in office, how to handle immigration in a way that is actually consistent with Catholic social teaching in which you can treat everyone with dignity and also
0: have an orderly nation, essentially? Sure. And listen, this is such an important point because you know a lot of people who favor open borders, although they won't use that phrase, but they de facto you know, favor open borders or at least porous borders, they often try to couch that policy in terms of mercy and, and often in, in explicitly Christian terms of mercy. But there is nothing merciful, there is nothing kind about tolerating open borders. Why? Well, number one, because there's, there's never a complete vacuum of authority. Okay, So when the United States cedes authority, when it surrenders authority over its own border, who takes control? It's the Mexican cartels. The Mexican cartels right now control the border. And all of these people who cross the border without our permission, who are uninvited and unvetted, um, they they do not cross simply on their own volition. They must literally pay a toll to the Mexican cartels to pass. And because of that, there is all order of human misery on both sides of the border. So a disorderly and lawless border creates human misery. There's nothing merciful about it there's nothing Christian about it there's nothing kind about it um, the God of the Bible is a God who believes in nations it is a is a, a a phrase a word that is used over and over again in the scriptures for good reason because he believes in order and part of order on earth uh, is nation states which are sovereign which have every right to define their borders just as you have every right to define the borders of your home and you know I often say, we need a strong border and we need a wall that is actually built and ronda Santos promises to build it not because we hate those on the outside that's not why i lock my doors at night i don't it's not because i hate those in the street but rather because i love those on the inside and because i want to protect my family well it's time to protect our american family and we haven't been doing that and quite frankly republicans have been very good on the bluster on this point uh but not very good on delivery for example President Trump, who again, I have great admiration for, President Trump, even when he had both houses of Congress, uh, Republican Senate and House, did not deliver on the fundamental promise of his 2016 campaign, which was to fully build the wall. He built some wall, which is good, but it clearly was not enough. If the wall had been fully built, uh, Joe Biden would not be as able as he is right now to abuse the American people with this current open border. And to get to Ron DeSantis specifically, you you mentioned sending the illegal migrants to nantucket or to martha's vineyard rather uh, the other island up there uh that was significant not just symbolically it was mostly for symbolism but not just symbolically but also to make america wake up to the reality that this open border and we now have north of six million illegal migrants who have been welcomed in the united states not just tolerated but welcomed in the united states during the biden administration that number is so large um and they are spreading so much uh so vastly across the united states that border issues are no longer only the problem of border states. This is no longer just Arizona's problem uh, or Texas's problem or Florida, which is a water border state for the United States. It is a problem for all of America. And sending those migrants to the swanky confines of Martha's Vineyard was a way to remind America uh, that this is a problem for everybody. But also on the policy front, what did he do then? You know, Because the, the power of governors is limited, frankly, on this issue of immigration. It's primarily a federal issue. But what did he do, and how did he use uh, his power and the the mandate of the people of Florida? Well, he passed E-Verify, making sure that in Florida, it's probably the most difficult place in America for an illegal migrant to work and compete unjustly, illegally in the workforce against American citizens. So making sure that American citizens who reside and work in Florida do not have that unfair, unjust competition through E-Verify. Was opposed by the business community, was opposed by a number of his donors, Uh, But he did it anyway, and again, that is the kind of boldness, the kind of uh, of decisiveness and dedication to a task that he is going to bring to the federal government to make sure that we finally get a hold of this this immigration nightmare. You know, I just recently posted on my Substack. It's uh, SteveCortez.substack.com, an article on on the aspect of school. You know, getting back to education and what this influx of illegal migrants is doing to schools in the United States as we just start a new school year. To take New York City specifically. There are 19,000 new students in New York City who are uh, child illegal migrants. Now, I don't blame any of them. I'm not demonizing these children. They clearly did not make the choice to break and enter into the United States. That was their parents or other adults who made those choices. But the point is, New York City schools, like a lot of city schools in this country, are already failing anyway. The influx of thousands and thousands of students who largely do not speak English, many of whom are totally uneducated or even illiterate in their home country and their home language, is going to do nothing to help the citizen children of the United States. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite, is going to overwhelm these school systems this year. So, you know, again, I I would hope to persuade the, the folks out there in the audience, particularly those who take the Catholic faith seriously, that mercy for your fellow man does not involve a porous border, does not involve lawlessness and criminality, um, and does not involve in any way diminishing the importance of sovereignty and sovereign nations and law and order and migration only uh, through means that are that are properly recognized by U.S. law.
1: Yeah. And another thing that I think is really top of mind for a lot of people, we co- are coming up now on the one-year anniversary of Mark Hawk the pro-life activist that was arrested outside of uh, Planned Parenthood, um, the FBI and the Department of Justice under the Biden administration seems to really have a target placed on everyday Catholics. We think about, um, specifically, uh, with Mark Houck, but then also with the radical traditionalist Catholic memo that, oh, it's just in the Richmond office. Oh, wait, it actually is in three other places. It was kind of widespread. Seemingly Christopher Ray has pretty much lied to the American people saying it was only a Richmond product. Um, It really seems like the Biden administration, although Biden claims personal Catholic faith, has really targeted just everyday Catholics. And not even to mention that churches were locked down at a time where gambling was legal, where places in California, people are partying in the French laundry, but we can't really receive the Eucharist. I mean, these are real problems to Catholics. And it seems to me, in his experience, Governor DeSantis really understands the leverages of power here. As a personal Catholic himself, going in, seeing that big problem, how does he plan to clean that up? To re- restore integrity to law enforcement and, you know, having blind justice, yeah. essentially.
0: You know, Don, uh, Joe, I'm glad that you mentioned that, you know, Joe Biden, uh, who is at least Catholic in name, he loves to brag about how he, how he always has a rosary in his pocket. But, you know, that did not stop him when he was vice president from t- targeting and harassing the little sisters of the poor. It has not stopped him now in when he is president, once he is back in the White House from targeting uh, believing traditional Catholics with harassment by U.S. law enforcement, with weaponizing the FBI against people who simply have deeply held faith beliefs. Um, and that's very, very unfortunate. So I believe it is time, uh, and this isn't my main reason to to uh, persuade people to, uh, to vote for Ron DeSantis, but I believe it's time to get a real practicing Catholic uh, in there in Ron DeSantis, somebody who doesn't try to boast about it, doesn't use it as a political prop the way that, uh, that Joe Biden does, but somebody who who very much implements an agenda that is consistent with a Catholic worldview, um, using power. But you know, to get specific about okay, so what can be done with these federal agencies uh, that are, I think, wildly out of control? And you know, in particular, the FBI, and what a shame there too, because the FBI used to be a place uh, where a lot of Catholics, particularly Irish Catholics, uh, served in really yeah. important posts over the years. You know, some of the most respected folks in you know, a lot of. Catholic communities in Washington, D.C., and New York, and Chicago, were FBI agents. A lot of folks who would come through law enforcement, uh, perhaps had been cops first, and then sort of graduated onto the FBI, a place with an august history, but that has increasingly functioned as a political police force uh, rather than a legitimate law enforcement arm of the federal government. So two things, really. The one is, and and Governor DeSantis has been very adamant about this, is uh, to use the power of the purse. We need to, to largely... Uh, defunded the nefarious activities of these agencies, and the, and the Congress has the power to do that. It hasn't used it, certainly hasn't used it effectively yet, but it can. So if we were to elect a President De, uh, DeSantis and a Republican House and Senate, I have every belief that they will do that, that they can uh, use the power of the purse to say, we will not fund these kinds of activities from these agencies. But then secondarily, structurally uh, uh, reforming these agencies, and in some cases structurally reducing the size of these agencies. For example, uh, Governor DeSantis has promised that he's going to move a substantial portion of the federal workforce out of the Washington, D.C. area. The FBI right now has plans to build a campus outside of Washington, D.C. that is going to be larger than the Pentagon. Uh, Why does that have to be in Washington, D.C.? A place where, by the way, the Democrats got 95% of the vote in 2020 in Washington, D.C. We, we know that any large organization in Washington, D.C., when it's large enough, it is going to have per, you know, a preponderance of Democrat uh, workers there. That's just the, the mathematical reality of Washington, D.C. Uh, why should it be there? And uh, Ron DeSantis has been very uh, very adamant about the idea that we're going to move that workforce out of Washington and that a lot of people who right now... Enjoy supposed civil service protection, but people who are actually highly politicized operators and bureaucrats within the federal bureaucracy, that they can in fact be fired, um, and that the, that the president can use his authority to fire those people, to put them on notice, and if they continue to act in a politicized way, to fire them. And I believe that a President Ron DeSantis would fire a lot of people from the federal bureaucracy, including um, some of those malefactors at the FBI and the overall DOJ.
1: Yeah. And uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention too, and this is an area I think most of the country can acknowledge that President DeSantis or Governor DeSantis at the time uh, shined was uh, mask mandates. And they seem to be coming back. I've seen them happening in a few different places. I know President Biden has actually pledged that there's going to be a new vaccine made. I think for most people, there was really almost shock and frustration. I think there was some goodwill at first to be like, okay, we'll wait, we'll see what happens. But then it dragged on and dragged on and dragged on. Then it took until a federal judge basically said, okay, n- this isn't going to be required on federal travel, such as airplanes, for it kind of to stop. But I know that Governor DeSantis went really against the grain right away saying, no, we're not going to require this. This is anti-science. Uh, he's done a great job with his, um, I forget the name, but uh, the, his head of medicine in Florida. I'm forgetting his uh, name Dr. Right now, he's done a great job. Yes. Yeah. He's been awesome. And so I want to hear, and I think a lot of Americans would like to hear as well, President uh, President DeSantis, what he would do to essentially m- make sure in law that this could never happen again—that you can't shut down everyday Americans' ability to go to church, shut down their business, um, force them to take things against their their conscience, such as the vaccine, if they don't want right. to—in order to just function in society—can he make any guarantees
0: as to what he's going to do if he's president to make sure it never sure. happens again? And, and by the way, I'm, I'm glad that you you know mentioned Dr. latipo because I, I do think this is—he he should be better known. Uh, he should be far better known in this country. Yeah. No, he's awesome. in Dr. Fauci, yeah. okay, because he is the antidote. He's the answer to all the problems of, of Dr. Fauci. And, and Dr. Latipo uh, speaks very highly, you know, to, to describe him, speaks very highly not just of him and his skill and credential and his ethics, but also of Governor DeSantis because he was, a, at the beginning of the DeSantis gubernatorial administration, uh, Latipo was a professor at UCLA. Now, because he took a very skeptical view of the lockdowns, um, and of things like mass masking, particularly masking of children, of, of school closures. Because he was skeptical of that, he was shunned at UCLA. Um, Governor uh, Governor DeSantis found that out, found him, and said, I need you in Florida. I need strong, legitimate, scientific advice. I don't believe I'm getting it from Fauci, who is totally politicized and is a megalomaniac in love with the sound of his own voice and the sight of his own face on television. Uh, we, we do not want to take the dictates any longer of the Trump-Pence-Fauci task force and so brought uh, Dr. Ladipo over to Florida as the state Surgeon General. This is a man, by the way, legal immigrant to the United States, has both an MD and PhD from Harvard University, uh, impeccable credentials, but an even more impressive character. And somebody who liked DeSantis was willing to take on powerful interests in this country, willing to take on big pharma, Fauci, corporate media, and say, no, wait a second, this is what's effective, this is what isn't effective. And in the state of Florida, what they primarily decided to do was to protect the vulnerable, particularly the elderly, which is obviously a large part, Population in the state of Florida, but tell the rest of society it's time for you to get on with your lives. It's time for you to, to act normally. And no, masks do not work against a respiratory virus. Uh, they, they they are simply a virtue signaling effort to control the populace. And so, what what Governor DeSantis, so not just looking backward to what he did, but looking forward to what he can do, uh, number one, in the state of Florida, he has established a grand jury, the only governor in America to do this to start to investigate if there were crimes committed by Big Pharma. For example, did they knowingly lie about side effects of the vaccines? I think a lot of us certainly have a strong suspicion that they did. Um, Well, Governor DeSantis intends to find out the evidence. And while they have immunity, Big Pharma, at the federal level, they do not have immunity in the state of Florida. So they could potentially face at least civil liability, perhaps even criminal liability in the state of Florida. So that's a great example of a governor using the power he has to try to rectify a terrible situation. Now, it's even more important at the federal level if he becomes president of the United States because so far, Tom, the reality is the crimes committed against the people of this country and particularly committed against children in 2020, and I do truly believe that they were crimes, the tyrannies in the name of so-called health and, and supposed science. Uh, so far, the uh, the 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 perpetrators who inflicted those crimes have not paid any price. And as a matter of fact, in many cases, the opposite. They have been rewarded for their misdeeds. Well, if there is not accountability, believe me, they are going to do it again. And when I say do it again, it may not be under the guise of a virus. It may not be like, okay, now there's another novel coronavirus. But they will use whatever pretext possible, and they will use this supposed excuse of this is, quote, for your health to inflict tyranny upon Americans. And let me to take this out of just the theoretical, let me tell you where it's already starting to happen, and I see a lot more evidence of this. Right now, those very same leftists, and in many cases, it's literally the same people, the same news organizations, the same newspapers, the same think tanks, lobbyists, politicians, they are already starting to use a lot of those tactics, the lockdown mandate tactics. They are using them now under the guise of climate hysteria. Uh, they're, they're, so believe me, what COVID was, the, the, the exploitation of COVID, to achieve their tyrannical means is now already being switched. It is, being, it is morphing into we're going to use so, so-called climate change. And I say so-called because the climate is always changing, of course. But climate hysteria, climate alarmism, um, they're using that as an excuse, as a pretext, to start to clamp down on our rights. And if we, if we don't have accountability, my argument is if we don't have accountability for the COVID offenses, they will be all the more emboldened uh, to to, uh, to in, inflict harm upon us using these new excuses that are supposedly, quote, for our health. So that's yet another reason that I think, when it comes to this issue in particular, uh, I, I don't think there's a candidate out there who can even uh, come close to the record of Ron DeSantis, both what he did in 2020, as well as his current posture, current stance um, toward a reckoning, toward an accountability for what happened during COVID and making sure that that kind of tyranny never happens in this country again.
1: Yeah. And I think those are some great points. Uh, so just so we can get back, back to brass tacks here, I think you're going to have to convince a lot of people that maybe have voted for Trump once, maybe they voted for him twice, to now basically say, okay, it's, it, I'm now convinced basically that DeSantis is a better option in, in this primary. What is your message to someone that maybe liked Trump, had a lot of affinity for him, voted for him twice, what would you say to convince them that DeSantis is actually the better option if you could just make an elevator pitch to people out there in that position? sure.
0: So Tom, what I would first say to those folks, to the devoted supporters of Donald Trump is number one, I, I, I respect you and I know where you are because I also myself was there for, for many years and I was one of the most public and, and, and vocal supporters of Donald Trump advocating for him and for the movement. Um, You know, very uh, ferociously in the corporate media, taking on some of the hardest possible media assignments for seven years. I would also uh, uh, ask you, you humbly ask you to to consider who is the best option to both win the general election and then implement a very conservative, patriotic, populist agenda into this 2024 election and the 2025 um, uh, inauguration. I submit that that candidate is Ron DeSantis. Uh, And for these reasons, number one, because he can serve two full terms. Number two, because he does not bring some of the problems and baggage that Donald Trump brings to office. And when I say baggage, a lot of that baggage is frankly not Donald Trump's fault. But nonetheless, there are a lot of extraneous issues uh, that are going to be very problematic for Donald Trump uh, in his attempt to regain office again. And those are not issues for Ron DeSantis. Uh, number three, in terms of growing our coalition, what, what Ron DeSantis showed us with his magnificent landslide victory in 2022 was that he was able to take a very narrow victory in 2018 and turn it into a landslide. How? Through effective governance and through winning over voters who either weren't involved in the political process or had been Democrats or independents and he won them over. We must win over independents to win this election American voters increasingly become independent. Right now, according to Gallup, by self-identification, it's almost exactly 25% of Americans are Republicans, 25% are Democrats, 50% are independents. It's as big as the other two parties combined. Who is the best candidate to win over the support, to earn the support of independents? I believe it is Ron DeSantis. And I say that not because we're sacrificing, not because we're uh, we're supporting a milk toast conservative. No, in fact, I would argue he's the most conservative candidate in the race. Um, but because of his approach, because of his youth, because of what he's done in the state of Florida, uh, he is the man most likely to earn that independent support and to win not just the presidency, which is critical, but to also have the kind of coattails where we can then win the House by a bigger majority, retake the Senate, uh, and do well in state races, state legislature, gubernatorial races across America. I believe this is the next natural evolution of the America First movement. And uh, I respectfully submit that that argument. And I hope that persuades some diehard Trump folks out there to at least give a serious look at Governor DeSantis.
1: Okay, Steve, thank you so much for coming on, making the case for a uh, potential President DeSantis. And uh, if we need uh, any more updates, we're going to be calling you. Great. Thank you so much, Tom.